Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Athletic Perspective Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Jorgensen, and this week, Steph and I are joined by registered dietitian and sport nutritionist Katie Jessup as we discuss how nutrition fuels performance. So we're trying something a little bit different with the format of this episode, because not only is our guest fielding questions from, from Steph and I, she's also going to be answering questions from you, the listeners. So these are questions that we've received over the past few weeks through our social media channels. Now, you can do us a huge favor by letting us know what you think about this episode by leaving a rating and review on whichever app you're listening through, or by following and sharing our content on social media. Most early podcasts expand by word of mouth of the listener base. So if you're in the holiday spirit, do us a favor And if you enjoy our content, share our posts on your social media, use our hashtag, so that's hashtag with those who play, or even just mention it to a buddy of yours. With this being our fifth episode, and the final episode of 2019, we're really looking to expand in the new year. So we're looking to expand with better sound, more frequent episode releases, greater variety of episode formats, such as the Q&A format, and of course, more great guests and content for you to check out. So without further ado, let's go. So welcome, Katie. Thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Really excited to, to have you on. Thank you. Do you want to just start by giving the listener a little bit of background information about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Katie Jessup. I'm a registered dietitian and educated in dietetics. There's a million different things that are involved in dietetics. You can be a dietitian that just specializes and specializes in kidneys, or you can be a dietitian that just specializes in dietetics. And so when you're originally taught to be a dietitian, you don't really know what your interests are. And eventually I realized that mine was fucked. Um, and we're sitting here looking over the pool and I'm realizing that when I was doing my master's and in dietetics, um, I would mostly do my studying here um, in the uh, area with the benches right in front of the pool. And it was kind of like a womb. Um, it's all warm and like wah, wah, wah. So um, <laughs> eventually I started to look in the pool and I was like, what are they doing down there? Oh, look, they're swimming. I don't really know how to swim. Like, I love the water, but I really want to learn how to swim. So I took a learn to swim course at U of T, like adult learn to swim. Yeah. And then in my first job, someone said, oh, do you like to swim? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you come with me at lunchtime? And then the next person I met said, well, why don't you join a master's club? So now I'm a swimmer and a competitive swimmer, but it's something that I learned how to do, like, really late in life, mm-hmm. which um, started me working with athletes who were swimmers. And now that I kind of understand, like, okay, I know how hard swimming is. Imagine what it would be like to be a swimmer that was in the pool four hours a day and like yeah. didn't have any time for anything else. What would that be like? How that? And I get quite anxious when I know that people aren't eating. So I started to think like, how is a swimmer even alive? <laughs> uh, so that's really where this started right here at this pool. Um, so at a certain point in there, I decided that uh, sport was where I wanted to focus. And then from there, you know, I know a lot about sports and I play a lot of sports, but um, each sport is very different in terms of uh, what their needs are and what the culture is. So yeah. that kind of started me on the journey to sport dietetics. And and so you're an athlete as well in terms of master swimmer as well as cycling. And so can you tell us about that? 
so road cycling is, again, something I kind of started later on. Um, when I was in high school, I would ride really far, like about an hour to my job and then an hour back at the end of the day uh, with these two other guys. And at a certain point, I was like, you know, if I scoot my bike right behind yours, it's way easier. <laughs> and we were going along Lakeshore Boulevard and we were going really fast and for a long time. And at the end, I was like, you know, I could keep going. Like, do you think we could keep going? And the guy that was with me was like, no, there's no way I'm going to keep doing that. And I was like, I, 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 I kind of feel like I could do this for the rest of my, you know, like I could get into this. And he's like, yeah. not me. <laughs> well, it turns out that not only did I get into road cycling like 15 years after that conversation, but I actually married that guy. And now oh. we ride together. <laughs> so <laughs> what a strange, like, cracks me up at least once a week. Like, I can't believe that this is what we're doing. So, um... Anyway, as all things, when you do them a lot, you're like, well, maybe I should compete. So I started doing Ontario Cup racing, which cool. is really hard, and most people are way younger than me, so it means I just have to be stronger than everybody else. Um, and I'm not very good at it, but I really enjoy it. Again, like it, it allows me to, because it's an endurance sport, you have to overlay like how does fueling impact your performance. You're going out riding for five hours at a time. Um, it makes a significant difference to your performance, depending on how well you fuel and um, and each individual is different. So, uh, I learned a lot about, you know, general recommendations versus what works for me. And that again was a great learning experience I could pass on to others. So the Ontario cup, could you just give a brief description of what that is? Oh yeah. So, um, Ontario cup racing is something that happens in mountain biking as well as in, uh, road riding. And it might even happen in other forms of bike riding as well. Um, but essentially it's, uh, different locations around Ontario and it typically happens in the warmer months. Um, and you have to have a, a cycling license and you, um, so some people just kind of buy their cycling license and show up and then other people will take like a learn to race course, uh, which is what I did so that you can be safe and like learn how to, you know, bash each other with the elbows a little bit and get people out of your way and racing strategies and yeah, teamwork yeah. and all that stuff. Um, so then, yeah, you just show up and they will post the course in advance. So some people will ride it in advance or. Um, look on Google Maps in advance and try and get a sense of it. Um, and then you show up on the morning, and uh, for women, it's usually a 60-kilometer race. Yeah, it's really intense. <laughs> yeah, are most are most participants going, I mean, I'm sure there's a variation, but it, like, what percentage would you say are going to win, and what are there to, and how about there to um, participate and just, you know, finish? Good question. I think that there are some people who are repeatedly, you know, they're there to win, and depending on how well you place, you get points. Depending on how many points you get, you can then qualify for higher races. And a lot of it depends on how many races you go to. So the more races you go to, the more you're driving around in your car, um, living this very punishing lifestyle. And there's a book <laughs> called Pro Racing on $10 a day because it's really kind of you're living out of your car. And uh, the more racing you do, the more tired you are. And yet the more points, if you do well at it, you know, it very quickly separates the wheat from the chaff, as it were, in terms of like who is a naturally gifted athlete. Um, as well as someone that's, you know, doing the right strategies. So, um, yeah, there actually was a woman that I worked with at the Canadian Sports Institute who, that's what she did. She started in Oak Cup racing and then, and I think she had had a tremendous uh, athletic background already. Like she was um, the, uh, she was one of the junior captains of Team Canada Hockey. Um, and then somehow she got into road racing and then did very well at O-Cups. And so I looked her up and she had won a whole bunch of Oak Cup races. And then eventually went on with the professional team, raced in Europe. Um, so yeah, that's how it happened. There's so many sports I find that happen in on, like Ontario that I just never knew about. I know. You know, I know. I'm like, 
Sign me up. Yeah, I'm like in such a little like rugby skiing bubble. (laughs) Here in Canada, almost everybody goes through hockey at some point, Mm. right? I don't know about girls versus boys, but certainly in my world with my age group kids, everybody tries hockey at least once. And in Belgium, everybody tries bike racing. Everybody. So all the best bike racers in the world, not all, but like a lot of them are coming um, out of Belgium Belgium and not just Belgium, but like the uh, Dutch part of Belgium, which is called Flandria Mm. um, because it's their culture. Right. Yeah. So they have like all those like junior programs and then you move up and they go through the schools and do that whole like finding talent thing. They do that with bike racing. Well, in Canada, you would think that hockey would lend itself well to bike racing being the power, the lower body power that's required Mm. of the sport too. You could see somebody coming off the ice and onto a bike pretty. Well, you have to be really, it turns out, it's power to weight sport. So you have to be really tiny. Right. You have to have the smallest muscles for the greatest strength. Um, so some people are naturally, I mean, I look at like the skinny little boys who think that they're not good at anything. I'm like, perfect. <laughs> if you ever tried, I mean, you know, we, it, there's a bit of a, it's, it's not usually your first sport because right. um, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And you have to find a group of people to go out with. So you're always trying to catch up to people who are stronger than you, mm. which is hard. I had this neighbor and he, he was retired and he used to do Ironmans. Mm-hmm. And I got a road bike uh, when I went to university, and he, he invited me to come out to go riding with him. And we, I think we went like 65 kilometers. I had not done any sort of distance before, and I was absolutely exhausted. And he, I don't even think he broke a sweat. <laughs> and he was like biking circles around me. It was so unbelievably impressive. Having him explain technique and sort of strategy for like when when to coast and when to be behind someone and when you know because mm-hmm. uh, where I grew up it's a lot of kind of backcountry rolling hills roads so I'm much happier having a chat when I'm moving mm-hmm. we should have done this on bikes we could have <laughs> there is a podcast for that it's called home roads you can hear all the traffic in the background and people Next are like <laughs> <laughs> part two Katie totally yeah. <laughs> So, okay, so as an, as an athlete, uh, obviously like an interest in sport from, from early on and then also in dietetics, when did, when did the two, you were saying you alluded to it a bit with uh, the pool, but when did the two really start coming together and what did that look like? I think um, I had had, I spent about 10 years at Heart and Stroke Foundation working with the Health Check program um, and the Health Check program was helping uh, consumer packaged goods and restaurants essentially provide healthier foods to Canadians. Um, so it was like a check mark that you could look on either a menu or on a consumer packaged good, like a can of soup, um, to say like the Heart and Stroke Foundation has had a look at this. Uh, they have specific dietitians to that program, and we give it the thumbs up um, for its category. So like for the soup, it would be a little bit lower in sodium, and it would be maybe higher in fiber and more vegetables. Um, and then with restaurants, it would be like we need more protein, we need more vegetables. So I did that for, um, yeah, about 10 years. And then as that was ending, I kind of decided... I think because I was getting into all the swimming um, and the biking, like, you know what, I'm really interested in this sport thing. Um, and the Dietitians of Canada were offering a intensive sport program. So I had been, and I think because my undergrad was in nutritional science, which is different than dietetics, it's like kind of what Kin does here. It's all research related to nutrition. And um, I really like the sciencey side of nutrition. And I found that sport nutrition really combined those two. Um, so it took all that science and made it practical, um, specifically for athletes. So I think that's, um, it feels like it was a while ago now. Like, why did I do that? 
Uh, that was the reason. It's because it was the one that closest, for me at least, brought the science uh, much closer um, to uh, any sort of practice. So mm -hmm. up until then, I hadn't really had a clinical practice. I hadn't really worked one-on-one -on -one with athletes or, or frankly, with anyone um, in, uh, in a regular sort of way. It was more like population health. Like, what do oh, okay. all Canadians need? All Canadians need more vitamin D. All Canadians need a certain amount of iron. So looking at one-on-one -on -one, um, was a, a big change for me, but one that I really loved. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out that's my favorite part. So you alluded to this a little bit, but could you just expand on how, I guess, the scope of practice differs between like a dietitian and, and someone who's like a sports nutritionist? Yes. So I think the first thing is um, because we are overseen by a college, it means that we have to follow the rules and there are a number of rules. So very similar to how a doctor's trained or a nurse is trained, they have certain things they do and they have ways of doing it. So, for example, if an athlete comes to me and they're... Um, showing signs of things outside of my practice, so things that I don't understand very much or that I'm not an absolute expert in, which would be called competency, I would think to myself, I am not very competent in this area. Uh, for example, you're a uncontrolled diabetic, so I need to get you to someone who is really competent in this area. I'm going to hand you off. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that we can ensure that everybody has um, not just a, a good experience, but a very high level experience that gets them what they need. Um, and that would be true for anybody who is working under a college. So you have to be very aware of what you're competent at. And then you also have to have a number of colleagues that you can reach out to and, and vice versa. Right. Um, so that everybody is receiving the highest level of care. I think another difference is that if I was to suggest that you needed an iron supplement, for example, I wouldn't tell you what kind to get. Um, instead, I would say, here's a bunch of iron supplements. I want you to get this amount of iron. Um, and the reason is because I don't, like, uh, it would be a conflict of interest to me, for me to be promoting one brand over another. Mm -hmm. um, so in some professions, they will actually sell you the product, which I always feel a bit weird about. Like, now you're making money off the product you're selling me versus, you know, just the advice that I came to. Um, so I would say that there's probably a number of others. But for me, that, uh, I guess the third thing would be that uh, we are, spending about a year doing an internship. So you're being overseen by another health professional who's a dietitian, who's gotten through the same training, and who must meet the same levels of uh, standard care, which is always, for me, the most, well, one of the most exciting parts about being a dietitian is that not only did I go through that internship and have all these different workplace experiences and that allowed me to decide where I wanted to spend my time, but also now that I'm a dietitian, I get to take on interns. Um, and they're kind of the same, like, oh, I'll spend a little bit of time in sport dietetics, I'll spend a little bit of time in the intensive care unit of a hospital, I'll spend a little bit of time um, in a First Nations community, and kind of understand, you know, where it is that I want to practice. Your internship, is that the one that you did at the Canadian Institute of Sport? No, uh, my original internship, um, I spent time in four different places. I spent time clinically in a hospital, I spent uh, some time in industry, and then I also spent some time um, doing uh, community work. So each of those groups is dealing with different populations. And so mm -hmm. the first thing you have to do is find out, well, what are the needs of that population? So when I started working with the University of Toronto, that's a very different population. I'm dealing now with students of a very specific age, some of which are away from home for the first time. So very different population than if I was dealing with, um, let's say, a diabetic population. All of them have their own needs. So going back to um, the Canadian Sports Institute, after I did that intensive sport course, where I got to meet a lot of the researchers that actually were writing the papers that I had read about, 
a lot of that was very, let's say theoretical, but it's, you know, it's, it's science. So it is tested on small groups of people. And then you get to take that and try and apply mm. that to a specific population. At that point, uh, the Canadian Institute of Sport was offering an internship. I was like, fantastic. And I don't know, um, it, it was just the right timing for me. So yeah. I went and actually worked at the Canadian Sports Institute, which is just over here at the uh, near the Scarborough U of T campus. And they have a whole series of different kinds of athletes, um, many of which are competing internationally. So they're not there all the time. They're kind of coming in for a few days and getting diagnoses. They might be seeing the sport doc, seeing a physiotherapist, reworking some of their strength and conditioning, um, and essentially working through their yearly training plan. And so I got to be a part of that. So not only are you working with the athlete, but you're also working with all the other professionals that work with that athlete so yeah. that you get to understand what each of the goals are for each of the different areas because mm -hmm. they all combine holistically to make a better athlete, right? It's that whole idea of all the 1%. If we could make you 1% better at sleep and 1% better at eating, and what, all of a sudden you've got like a 10%. Uh, increase in performance. Mm -hmm. So I think what's different about sport dietetics versus being a dietitian in another area is that we're not just, we, we start with general health. Is this person generally healthy? And yes, great. Now, how can we take you to the next level in terms of not just better health, but also better performance? And I think that that's a bit of a strange shift for a number of people that I do see is they're thinking that I'm going to tell them to eat, you know, a certain kind of food. And it's, it really doesn't often go that way. A lot of it is as much about when they're eating as about what they're eating. One thing in our communications back and forth via email, I notice you have a really cool quote as your email signature. So it's, it's greatness doesn't happen on empty. Why, why do you like that quote so much? I think that when you look at sport performance, there's a lot of aspects that go into it that you can see. And so when you look at the pictures, for example, from the Olympics, you'll see people doing their sport, for example. You'll see people, um, you'll see athletes talking to their coaches. You'll see athletes wearing their outfits, but you don't often see them eating. And I feel like each one of those athletes has the potential to do better if they're well-fueled. Um, and so some of them will know that already. And other sports, there's not that awareness around fuel and where it, uh, where it needs to go and, and what the best way to do it is. Sport nutrition, frankly, is a relatively new idea. And even nutrition is only like mm. a 50 year old profession, um, which is why we're still having debates about, you know, eggs yes or eggs no or margarine versus butter. It's because it's new. When it comes to greatness, the, the greatness doesn't happen on empty. The idea is you can't see what's going on inside your body. You can train on a daily basis um, and you get a sense of um, how your training is going, but that training will always go better if you're properly. And properly fueled feels different for different people. So a lot of it is just understanding what it feels like to be well fueled and then going through the same performance tests. Oh, now, now magically I am doing better. And I'm also recovering a lot better because, yeah. <laughs> um, because my body has the fuel to do so. So I feel like that's kind of an invisible area that I wanted to point out. With it being such a new field relative to many other areas of sport, how has your approach to nutrition changed? Because the field itself changes so much so quickly with it being so new. And uh, There's a tremendous amount of research that is coming out regularly. So I think a lot of the challenge is trying to keep up with that research, but also recognizing that the research is based often on very small groups of people. Um, so rather than having a cohort of, you know, like the uh, 
women's uh, nurses study, for example, that has been going on for many years, and it's tens of thousands of nurses. That's something that can kind of point to like, well, here's what happens over a 50-year period if you eat a certain way and live a certain way. What happens to heart disease? What happens to diabetes? Sport nutrition research is a little bit more like, well, what happens if we take 12 trained athletes and uh, subject them to a, a you know, certain type of nutrition? Let's say it's uh, providing leucine as an amino acid. What happens to them when we put them on the bike? Do they, you know, are they able to go for longer? Are they able to sprint to a higher maximum? But it's only 12 people and it's only men, for example. Or let's look at a group of untrained athletes. And sometimes untrained athletes are the only ones that um, they're able to bring in for the study. So, well, can we then apply that to a leader? You know, what even is a trained athlete? So keeping up with the research is challenging, but it's something that as a sport dietitian, I think that we are constantly being pulled in and, and also standing back a little bit. For example, there's some interesting research going on right now around collagen and injury. Um, so we could put collagen in the bloodstream and maybe it will get taken up uh, during some um, intense and very specific exercise, usually some sort of physio exercise, and maybe it will get taken into uh, the area of interest during that exercise, and maybe it won't. It's early research. Um, is it something that's going to harm the athlete? No, collagen will break down naturally. So it wouldn't be a terrible idea to try it if it's something that we feel like we've tried everything else and the athlete's diet is already excellent. And I think that that's a really important point because if the diet of the athlete is not excellent, then the chances that collagen are going to make a difference will be really hard to measure. So I feel like what I often start with with athletes is the base diet, right? It's just like base training. Uh, base training has to happen. You can't just for example, if we apply it to the pool, you can't just show up every couple of weeks and sprint really hard and expect the best times ever. You have to do all of that base so that your muscles are well-tuned so that when you do put the pressure on, things don't blow up. And it's the same thing with, with nutrients. If your body is comfortable and rec recognizing that you're going to be feeding it approximately the same types of foods on a regular basis, that is every few hours, then your body can relax. The hormones kind of settle down. We don't have this big uh, cortisol response, uh, which is a stress response, um, because your body knows it's going to get fed. So the idea, for example, of fasting for certain periods of time or taking out certain nutrients from your body, there's going to be a response in there, and it may be helpful, and it may not be helpful. So let's make sure that we just have a base diet with all the nutrients required uh, before we start pulling things out and putting extra things in. I think that's a good segue into the questions that were submitted from, from some of the listeners. So one question that was sent in, so Matt asks, is a plant-based diet all that it's cracked up to be? Uh, I would say sure. Absolutely. I've got no issue whatsoever with plant-based diets, and I think that's a personal choice. Um, and the personal choice also has to be related to practicality. So uh, with an athlete, we want to ensure that they're getting enough protein because we want really high protein turnover. Um, because we want high muscle turnover. We want to be able to get rid of all the old muscle that your uh, coach, your strength and conditioning coach has helped you tear apart. Um, and we want to replace that with stronger, more dense muscle. So protein turnover is in uh, important. And that protein turnover will only happen if we have enough protein intake. So we want to ensure that by moving to a plant-based diet, we're still getting adequate amounts of protein. So I would always start, if someone's thinking about going vegetarian or vegan, thinking, well, where are you going to get the protein? If you are thinking about becoming a vegetarian and you're looking around and you're not really finding a lot of protein in your current diet, then that's where I would really start asking the practical questions in terms of 
well, are you willing to try the foods that are higher in protein? So I did see an athlete, for example, that had just seen the movie Game Changers, which mm-hmm. is on Netflix, and I've had lots of questions about. And he was ready to you know, cut the cord and um, stay away from all animal products. And I said, okay, awesome. So you're going to eat lots of beans and lentils. And he said, but I don't eat those things. And I said, well, how do you feel about eating beans and lentils? And he said, no way. So that was a, like, that was a gap for me. Right. I don't know how you're going to do this in a sustainable way. And maybe the right thing to do is not to just quit animal products the way you would quit smoking. Maybe the idea is that you incorporate a vegetarian meal once a week or twice a week or even three times a week if you you know are able to make a big batch. Because the next question, of course, is how often do you cook? And if you don't cook right now, well, then how do you feel about the fact that you're going to be doing more cooking? If you're used to eating out, maybe you're not going to be eating out as often. And I think for me, the, the most practical example of that is when my husband became vegetarian, which was in university. And so he just ate cheese sandwiches. Just lots and lots and lots and lots of cheese sandwiches because that's all he knew how to make. Right. Yeah, and it comes. It, it kind of comes back to the, the what you were saying before in terms of having that baseline diet first and having those those habits built in already that are, are based on uh, a healthy diet because you can be plant based on Oreos and Lay's chips. Mm-hmm. Those are considered <laughs> vegan. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so it's not yeah anyway. And I think that if we weren't over, if we weren't looking through this from an athlete and performance based lens, I would say fine. Like eat as many cheese sandwiches and you can as you can stand, and eventually you will get tired of them. And either um, find something else to eat that fits into the vegetarian category, or you will go back to some of the things that you're eating before. And it's not really going to hurt. But if you are trying to compete at the same time, where the lens is we want to maximize, or at least uh, we want to maximize your performance, or we at least want to ensure that we're not doing any harm, then we need to do this in a practical way. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where I can give talks to groups of people, um, you know, whether it's the rugby team or the swim team, but those are all kind of, you know, they're generalities. What I really enjoy is dealing with people individually because everybody has their own life. Everyone makes their own choices. And also what I might recommend for one person will work for one, but will not work for another. Right. Yeah. And this, this isn't, this doesn't go in line with the questions from our listeners. This is my own question, but just it, it made me think about I've, I've always thought that for a dietitian, one of the ch- biggest challenges that you might in- incur is, is the cultural aspect of food. And so meeting with so many different types of people, especially in a city like Toronto and a, a university like U of T, that just cutting out certain foods or changing certain foods can have a big impact on somebody's culture because they're, it's, it's embedded in that. So back to the guy that didn't want to eat beans, he was Italian. And so I said, well, what are you, what are you used to eating? Let's start with what you're used to eating. And I I think that's, for me, that is the baseline. Um, which is one of the reasons why when I meet with an athlete, I will start out by saying, what have you eaten for the past few days? Like write it down before I see you because not because I'm going to tear it apart and say like, let's scrap the entire way that you're eating and do this new thing. Mm. That is not the way I work. The way I work is, well, let's base it on what you're used to eating because we know that so far that's worked pretty well for you. Um, It's what your gut and your body is used to. And we can make some changes within that that won't be completely like an overhaul and won't mean that you need to overhaul your entire life mm-hmm. um, and, and your culture. I would never want to take someone's cultural identity away from them from a food or a lifestyle perspective. So a follow-up question from Matt still was, what superfood do you get on the hype train about? Probably beans. 
I really like beans because they have they've got lots of fiber, they've got lots of B vitamins, they've got um, carbohydrates, and they've got protein. Um, so kind of a lot of different things in one little bean, and you can do a million different things with beans, and there's yeah. lots of different kinds of beans. Yeah. That that might be the most straightforward superfood answer yeah. ever given. And the first time I looked at the nutritional value of edamame beans, I think I fell on the floor at the protein content. <laughs> yes. It's exceptional. Yeah. And so we have we have Adam also, one of the listeners, and this speaks to, I think, um, exercising light versus exercising heavy as well. Mm-hmm. But he sounds like a light guy. Uh, I don't like to eat before games. What's my best bet? For context, uh, Adam is, is a, rugby, a varsity rugby player. Okay. So the first question I would have is, when are his games? And I know that his games are typically between 1 and, let's say, 5 p.m. Um, so he probably doesn't need to eat a lot before his game for the maybe three hours before, but backing that off earlier in the day, so like before the four-hour period, I would want him to have something really solid. And even backing it off into the 24-hour period beforehand, I would want to make sure that he's getting a good amount of slow-digesting carbohydrates. So slow-digesting carbohydrates would be the brown ones. They'd be like the brown rice, the brown bread, um, whole wheat pasta. So because they all are brown, they contain fiber, they're absorbed slowly, so they're not going to make you feel super full. Um, but because they're happening over, they're absorbing over a 24-hour period, by the time you wake up in the morning, you're fully fueled. Your muscles are ready to go, um, which means that what you eat the day of is not as important as what you eat the day before. Um, or we could even just back it up to the night before. So if you eat a good lunch the day before and a good dinner the day before and a snack the night before, all of which would contain, you know, the quarter plate of protein that I would often talk about, um, and maybe a half plate of carbohydrates, um, which is typically what I would call a hard day meal. We're getting ready for a hard game. Um, then when you wake up, it's really just about managing blood sugar. So having what you can stand for breakfast um, and what you can stand for lunch um, will put you in pretty good stead for the game. Yeah, and then good. during the game, I would want to make sure that there's some sort of fast-acting fuel mm-hmm. available. Just in, because you haven't, you know, if you're trying, if you're not comfortable eating a lot the day of, then you might be a little bit low, which means you just are going to want something around, like some pretzels or a banana or something that you can eat as long as that. So we have a question from Graham. And this we talked about really briefly, so it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on it. Uh, what are your thoughts on time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting for athletes? Ah, so time-restricted eating is something that I think is one of these things that is very interesting. Um, there's some interesting research, and um, I think people start to get very excited about that. Uh, some people feel better fasted. Um, that is, these are not necessarily athletes. They're just people that are walking around um, fasting maybe for a few days during the week. Um, and then others are people who are applying a intermittent fasting diet to weight loss. So lots of different reasons that people are trying intermittent fasting. Um, and my experience is that some people like the way they feel. They feel light. And others feel absolutely terrible and should not be on intermittent fasting diets. Um, and these are people who are maybe a little bit more sensitive to having um, to eating on a regular basis. Um So one of the things they will say in intermittent fasting websites is you'll get used to the feeling of being fasted. 
maybe mm. initially you'll be a little bit headachy and a little bit uh, high in fatigue, or maybe it's even described as a fasting flu. You might feel like you have a flu for a few days, and then your body will feel better after that. That doesn't happen for everybody. Some people feel terrible when they are fasted, and other people feel fine. So if we look at the research related to performance, we find that intermittent fasting is something that can help people lose weight um, in a way that they also at the same time are able to carry out their daily lives. But it's not for everybody. Generally, we do see that by putting all of the eating into a certain time frame, it means that they tend to eat less calories overall than they otherwise would just because there isn't enough time in the day to push all of those calories in, unless you start doing extreme things like chugging juice, for example. Otherwise, it's pretty hard to get all the calories that you require in a certain period of time, and you end up cutting some calories out. So for those people that feel good, they may find that they are able to lean out, that is, lose some body fat mass in that or following that procedure. So then I would ask, why is it important to lose that body fat mass? Is that something that is important for your sport? Is it important for your health? Or is it more of an aesthetic thing? Because bodies don't necessarily need to lean out for all sports or for all people. So I spend a good amount of time talking about like, what is the purpose? Why is there an interest in intermittent fasting? If it's weight loss, well, then where is that coming from? And how is this going to help you? And is it going to help you? Because we do see with an aesthetic sport, Aesthetic sports are sports where you're judged on how you look. So an example would be diving or um, synchronized swimming, where you have to, you know, look a certain way, and that is often associated with leanness. Um, so we do have some athletes that are underfueling to gain more points in aesthetic sports. So often intermittent fasting is used in those areas, but we have to be careful because. If we lean out too often or too much, it can impact performance. A good friend of mine, he engages in fasting at, at certain points of the year for religious reasons, and he still has to perform. And so what would you say to somebody in that situation? How to, uh, to refuel yourself during times of fasting, I think, is a tricky one. It probably starts with what's going on in my body. During the times that you're fasting, so assuming that you're eating after the sun goes down, during the time, during the day when you're fasting, your blood sugar will start maybe at a reasonable level and will go lower and lower. And when the blood sugar is going lower, where is the sugar uh, glucose? Where is it going when it's leaving your blood? It's going to your brain, also being fueled into your muscles um, and into your liver. But the brain is the one that's asking. So that feeling of hangriness is really your brain saying, please give me something to eat. It can be a bit of a shock to the system when you do start refueling. So the idea of starting slow, I think is important. Something slow and carbohydrate rich would be the first thing that I would eat. For example, eating, for example, a piece of bread, um, some rice, some potato. Um, these would be things that will immediately be absorbed because at this point, your blood sugar and muscles will be like a sponge. So not eating something extremely heavy, um, even a banana would kind of be perfect. Something that's able to be absorbed while the food after sundown is being prepared would be great. So pretty well having a strategy of eating something every hour um, and probably eating something that is a little bit more on the carbohydrate-rich side. So if I, would ha if I was to look at my plate, I would say, again, I would probably want to be eating more than half a plate full of carbohydrates, and they would be the slow-burning carbohydrates. So they would be like the more fibrous ones. And also the vegetables that I would choose would probably be kind of the starchier vegetables. So whether, again, that would be in the potatoes and the sweet potatoes, um, but things like carrots, peas, and okra.
my experience in talking to people who go through this period of fasting is that they get used to it. And I think they can tolerate it quite well as long as the exercise isn't intense. So when there is exercise that is intense, it is really important beforehand and during to drink as much water as possible. With each molecule of carbohydrate, you're binding some water. So when you're not binding those carbohydrates, when you're not having a regular source of carbohydrates coming in, we still want to ensure that the water is coming in regularly, um, especially in the summer months where dehydration can also be a factor. But really try and eat as much as you possibly can in the uh, non-fasting hours. And having a plan is the most important part. So Brian asks, how soon should I eat after a workout? I think, again, it depends. Um, it depends on the intensity of your workout. And this is also going to be governed by how comfortable one is eating after a workout. Um, the reason I say that is that when you work out intensely, or the more intense the workout, the more blood leaves your stomach. So your stomach is essentially shut down for business. And you may find that uh, you're not hungry after a workout. In fact, you don't want anything to do with food or drink after a workout. And that's because your stomach is just shut down for business. Um, if you check back with your stomach within half an hour, oh, it doesn't feel so bad. Um, and at, by an hour, you're probably hungry. So, and other people can eat full on like sausages with hot sauce right after the workout. <laughs> it just depends on who you are. You know your own stomach. Right. And often I'll meet athletes who don't know their own stomach. And so when we, we start to talk about that, well, let's try this. How does this feel? Let's try that. How does that feel? If you can eat right after a workout, then eat right after a workout. And what should you eat right after a workout? Well, you'll have two goals. The first one is you want to replace some of the carbohydrates that you just burnt off, especially if you're going to work out again in the same day. Um, and then the second thing is to put some fluid back because you will have sweat some fluid out. And again, because I'm assuming the exercise is coming quite consistently, that is, you're either exercising later in the day or tomorrow again, your body doesn't have a ton of time to recover. So the more time your body has to recover, the less urgent it is that we eat right after. So the rule of thumb is that if you are working out again sometime within the next eight hours or less, then it's quite urgent to get uh, some food in right after the workout. If your stomach doesn't want anything to do with that, then you choose a liquid. Um, so a juice or a sport drink would be great. And if you've got time, you've got like all the way until tomorrow, then you can take a little bit more time. Um, and maybe, you know, the next meal that you would eat would be within an hour, um, then great, have your meal within an hour, and uh, I'm assuming that the meal, again, would contain some protein, some carbohydrates, and then some sort of fruit or veg. Um, there is some great research out there that's suggesting that you need to eat within 20 minutes or within 30 minutes. Um, again, these are optimums for people who are working out intensely and often, so two or three times a day. Um, so as I say, if you've got 24 hours between, uh, in terms of recovery, it will certainly help if you can have more protein closer to the workout. And the typical number is 25 grams. So you will see, for example, in, uh, in gym situations, people who are drinking, you know, like a protein drink, for example, where they're adding in, uh, something like uh, whey powder, 25 grams with some water, and that'll certainly get you the protein that you require. Um, but it won't get you the carbs and it won't get you the, um, the other micronutrients you require, which is why I kind of like the food more, um, because it's not just providing protein, but it's providing all these other bonus micronutrients. The next question from our listener uh, is from Jim. This might not be your area of expertise, so you can always defer this question. But 
effects of cannabis consumption on hydration, diet, nutrition. What I think he's asking is what, how does cannabis consumption affect our hydration, our diet, nutrition, and potentially performance? Well, it's, um, I would say there's emerging research in this area and it's a really relevant question because it's around. Yeah. Um, and legal. And legal. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for performance, it's banned. That's right. So we want to really make sure that we are not an athlete who is working or who is uh, performing in the realm where um, uh, where it's banned. So you mentioned recreational recreational athlete. Recreational athlete, well, then, you know, that's up to them whether they want to try it. But if you are not a recreational athlete, if you are a competitive athlete, then this is a banned substance. So I think that needs to be really clear. Mm-hmm. Um, however, uh, for the non for those that um, the banned substance is not relevant, it certainly affects your uh, your timing. So your schedule, right? People who are, uh, whether it's edible or smokable product, it is going to affect how often you want to eat. Um, it can delay in some ways, and in other times it might speed it up. So uh, what we tend to see is that people, when they are ready to eat, they tend to eat more than they otherwise would. Um, and the food quality does not necessarily uh, tend to be what it would be if you were not stoned. Simple as that. So you might be, you know, if we think about like the typical munchies, the typical munchies are very carbohydrate focused um, and they tend to be pretty like fat kind of carbohydrates. So they would be like um, sometimes junk food, but often just like very carbohydrate, simple starch type laden foods. It would be rare for you, for example, to go out for a steak and baked potato with a side of veg um, if you're... In that um, in that realm, so I would say probably if you are a recreational athlete and you were looking forward to some sort of a race pretty soon in the future, like tomorrow, it will probably mess up your fuel plan. Um, your fuel plan will probably not stay on schedule. So, and that's that's something to be aware of. Which means that if you still want to get stoned, make sure that you are on schedule and find a way to do that. So, whether it's setting your watch uh, with an alarm, so you make sure that you're eating the food that you we're supposed to um, eat that you told yourself this was going to help your performance, that's an important component. So we talked earlier about what do I eat before a game, and we were thinking about the night before, um, making sure that you have a well-rounded meal based on that athlete's plate that I described, which is like a a half a plate of carbohydrates, a quarter plate of uh, some sort of a protein source, and some, um, some fruits or vegetables on the other part of the plate. Um, I would still want to make sure that happened. And I think that for many people, they have plans to do something. And then, you know, they go out and, oh, well, I ended up, you know, drinking a bunch or I ended up getting stoned. And then, you know, we went out for a late night pizza. Well, where was the protein? Um, did you get any of those micronutrients that we talked about? Right. Um, no. Okay, well, you're, that threw off your plan. Yeah. Is it going to make a huge impact? Who knows? It depends on what your body's used to. So I would say, you know, when I look at... Um, the, the, new, the research is still um, relatively new. A lot of it is because no one's been able to research that until now. So I would expect the next few years we'll have lots more research on that. Um, in the meantime, it's probably as simple as trying to stick to a plan as much as possible and staying hydrated. And, and around that hydration, that the focus is just drink as much as you can, as often as you can? Like so for me, it's consistent. really about the color of your urine. Um, and I really like to point people to uh, the color of lemonade. So I don't know if by looking at you if you're hydrated, and you probably don't know either, but if you look at the color of your urine, you'll have a pretty good idea. So it doesn't need to be clear. I think that's a, a misnomer. 
Clear urine could also be overhydration, and it's rare that people overhydrate, but sometimes they do. Um, so rather than becoming completely overhydrated, which would mean you would dilute the amount of sodium in your body to the point where you could have other uh, health implications, instead make sure that your urine is lemonade color or less. Anything darker than that means that you are not drinking enough and you need to drink more. Simple stuff. There's even an app called IP Daily, where you take a picture of your urine and it compares it to all the other days and then compares it to, because everybody has different colored urine as well, depending on how many B vitamins they eat and uh, other, other components. So it basically just compares it and says, like, you are dehydrated, you are hydrated. And although you might think that's a really strange app, for athletes that are traveling all over the world, where you know, their air travel can dehydrate, for example, or they're having to choose their beverages carefully because they may not be sanitary. Um, they really need to make sure that they're well hydrated and they don't really know. With working with so many different athletes, uh, both here and elsewhere too, are there common misconceptions that many athletes have when they first come in your door? I think the first common misconception will be a certain fear about what a dietitian is going to think about the way I eat. Mm. Um, it's, it's a sort of judging. And so when I, every athlete that I encounter, we have an email conversation first where I say, I am not going to judge what you eat. Instead, I am going to pick a few things that we can work together on that will help your health and your performance. But if you are someone that is consuming four liters of Coca-Cola a day, I'm not going to tell you you're a terrible person. Um, and I think that's a really important point because it doesn't matter how clean or not clean someone's diet is, everyone feels a little uncomfortable and a little exposed sharing it with a person who has a, a clinical focus on it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first misconception is that I'm not here to judge um, what people eat. Instead, it's more, how can we make a difference in your health and your performance? Which is probably a different experience than if you had... A health concern where you know for example you found out you were diabetic and someone said you have to stop eating you have to stop drinking beer no more beer ever again that's not something that generally happens in my practice and and um it's probably one of the lovely things that is um so special about sport dietetics is that the people that i work with you know mostly it's for positive reasons where we're working towards performance and also, the person is really motivated, mm. um, where I would say in a lot of dietetic practices, the person is going because they have to go, um, and they don't necessarily want to make the change, even though it might help them live a longer life, it maybe wouldn't be an area that they would choose otherwise. As an extension of that, what do you find are, are common barriers in terms of diet and nutrition? Probably the first barrier I see is not so much with the what they're eating, but the when. Um, mm. When is something that is not something that most people think about until they encounter a sport uh, where they realize that fuel or food can, um, can impact their performance. Um, so the idea of when should I eat before or when should I eat after, well, how about we just take the sport out of it entirely um, and talk about, well, what is my, what's the best way for my body to work? How often should I eat for my body to work, whether I have a sport or not? And I think a great example of that is a, a competition day where people say, well, what should I eat on competition day? You should eat the exact same way on a competition way day that you do every other day. Probably the competition will get in the way of that, so we'll have to work around it a little bit. But otherwise, you try and treat it as normal a day as possible. Um, you might be more motivated on that day to do things perfectly, 
because you feel like it matters more. But really, we need to make sure that you're eating as often on that day as you would any other day because your body really likes consistency. Um, so I think the when is important. And often what I find myself saying a lot of is, can you eat more often? Which becomes a, you know, a, pr a practical thing. Um, it's, it's more about behavior. It's not that the food isn't available. It's that you've got to pack it up and bring it with you and make sure to eat it at the right time. So that is more of a behavior change and one that we need to really break down in terms of let's get out your calendar. Let's figure mm -hmm. out when you're going to put these foods together so that you can just grab them on the run. Um, uh, you know, which kind of packaged foods can you take with you that are going to get you in the right direction? So I don't want you to grab a bag of chips. I want you to grab a bag of nuts, for example. Um, so really it's kind of understanding the lifestyle and understanding someone's schedule and then literally finding like the right place to just insert something. Sometimes we would take it from another part of the day. Um, like you're eating a lot at this time of the day. Well, maybe that's, you know, that's the end of the day. What if we took that thing and put it earlier in the day when you're more active and then you would find that, um, you don't need it as much at the end of the day, but you're feeling pretty good during the earlier part of the day because you yeah. And I, it's funny you say that too, because even just looking at the questions that we had, uh, you know, intermittent fasting, when should I eat after I work out? I don't like to eat a lot before competition. Those mm -hmm. are, you know, out of, thematically, like just the most common themes that came up in, in the questions there. So it's not surprising that that's, that's what you've identified. With all, I mean, it sounds like some of the major tools are around, uh, around behavior change, along with, uh, um, education around certain types of foods and so what changes in terms of behavior have you seen more frequently from from the athletes that you've worked with i think my favorite one is the area that people don't like to talk about um and so we talked about you know conceptions and judging um often i will see great looking meal um plans or meal records and i will kind of say well where's the junk where is that? You know, are, are, don't you ever treat yourself to something? Um, and sometimes the answer is no. And other times, oh, yeah, like in the evening, like I really, I buy ice cream and I can't stop eating the ice cream. It's so delicious. And I'll be like, okay, cool. I like ice cream too. How much ice cream are you eating? Oh, well, you know, I'll start with a bowl, but I might have like four bowls or like maybe it's chips or I, you know, for me, it doesn't really matter what it is. For me, it's an indicator that your body's not even getting enough fuel earlier in the day. It's really fun to take some of those calories from the end of the day and put them into the earlier part of the day. And then the end of the day stuff really kind of disappears. Um, and it's something that I think people think, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I just really like this food and I really like it as a treat at the end of the day. Um, and don't necessarily think that it's your body's response to uh, needing more food earlier in the day and then trying to make up for the calories uh, later in the day. So I don't have anything against those foods. It's more, well, let's put them where your body can actually use them. Mm -hmm. So um, if you're someone that is, you know, if we count up the number of hours that you're exercising during the day and you weren't able to put the food in, especially if you've got a very busy schedule and you don't have the food with you, then your body's not going to let you not have it at the end of the day. Um, and that's really a function of your brain. Again, counting up, did I get enough calories? What's my blood sugar like? Do I need more calories? And if so, it's going to ask for it in a sweet uh, or like a simple carbohydrate format. So if you think about all junk food, nobody's eating beans, right? <laughs> They're all eating or chips, which is high in carbohydrates. They're eating jelly beans, which is high in carbohydrates. They're drinking yeah. beer, which is high in carbohydrates. Like They're drinking pop, which is high in carbohydrates. It's all just your brain asking for carbohydrates. 
Yeah. I find that so interesting too, because coming at it from like the behavioral perspective there is you're, you're identifying athletes who are having difficulty self-regulating themselves. And then it turns into putting themselves in a bad position to exercise self-control. And so when you're talking behavior change, it's just setting yourself up for those successful, that successful mm. instance of, of exerting self-control over, over your diet. And I think that's where a lot of the guilt and shame can come in is that people are trying really hard to eat the right things. And then at the end of the day, they're having these cravings and they're feeling like, what's wrong? Why can't I control myself? Well, because your brain is doing a better job than you are. Your, your brain is in charge of all sorts of things, including your lack of control. Um, so you're actually working against your brain. So for me, that's a really fun one because if we can just take the calories and find a way to put them earlier in the day, um, then all the other feelings around what's happening at the end of the day get to disappear at the same time. How, how does that play into, say, an athlete who's looking to cut? like cut down on the calories they're ingesting and maybe lose weight, say for, uh, you know, a combat sport trying to hit a weight class or, or, or something like that. I think one of the things that is really challenging about cutting weight is that you're exercising and your body's asking for carbohydrates at the same time that you're trying to cut out calories, including carbohydrates. Um, if you were not working out, it wouldn't really be that hard because you wouldn't be hungry afterwards and you wouldn't need to recover and it wouldn't impact your, your workouts. And if you've ever had an off season and tried to cut then, it's way easier um, than during season. What we try and do is work in the off season to do the cutting because, because it's easier. Your, your body finds it easier. It's not quite so painful. Um, however, the motivation typically comes as in season uh, is getting closer. So the you know, the easiest response is let's make sure that you are not hungry while we are reducing your calories. Um, and so this is where you start looking at uh, the ketogenic diet, for example, which is really high in fat, really high in fat is really satiating, uh, takes a long time to digest. So you're full for a long time. So adding in more fat and more protein, those are two things that are going to slowly digest. So you're not going to be hungry. So doing a version of that or a low carb diet would you know, be the less extreme version of a keto diet. The, the idea is the same. We're taking the carbohydrates out of the diet in order to lose the calories that come from those carbohydrates. Where uh, when we add in the exercise, we want to make sure that there are carbohydrates available for the workout. So what I typically do is I work towards a lower carbohydrate diet, but then I add in carbohydrates for the before workout and for the after workout so that you're actually able to achieve uh, the intensity that you need in order to, you know, have the training adaption. And, and then we really focus on hunger and cravings to ensure that we are getting in enough calories because we, we want to, we do want to cut, assuming that we've decided it's a healthy thing to do and it's not forever. We do want to cut, but we don't want to cut too quickly because if we cut too quickly, your body will start um, breaking down muscle in order to provide that blood glucose we talked mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. um, so really we kind of in my own, you know, I go back and I do a little bit of math in the back to try and figure out how many calories we want to cut maximum. And so it's really not a question of slicing. It's more shaving. We really just want to take a few calories here and there on a daily basis so that, you know, if you're used to eating a certain kind of granola bar, for example, we would take out that granola bar and find you one that was the same size but with less calories in it. That would be a way of shaving. Right. Um, so that might be, a, you know, 100 calories you've shaved there, and then we might change the density of one of your meals, and that would be it. So it doesn't feel like a big change. 
I'm interested to hear what you have to say about how you would periodize something like a cut into training for an athlete. So um, I'll, I'll set the stage to just give an example where, say, uh, you know, the year would be cut into four, uh, three four-month chunks. So four months of competition, uh, four month directly off season, and then four month pre-competition. Some people feel or are able to gain and lose weight more quickly than others. So if you haven't done it before, or if you haven't done it with success, um, then we would take it slowly and meet more often and start in the off season for sure. Um, and also just coming up with a realistic goal is important. So let's look at, you know, if we remove five pounds from your body, what, where are those five pounds coming from? What would happen to you when those five pounds are gone? Would it actually improve your performance? If it won't, then, um, then, you know, why are we doing this? I think the other thing that we need to consider is muscle mass and, you know, are we going to lose some muscle mass? I mean, typically muscle follows fat and muscle and, and fat follows muscle around. So when we lose fat, we tend to lose a little muscle. When we gain muscle, we tend to gain a little fat. So, you know, you're talking about off season and then bulking, bulking up. So we need to be careful that when we're bulking up, are we bulking up because we're going to look really lean, but be as strong as we were before? Or is it more that, no, I just want to be as strong as I can be and I don't want to care how I look. Um, so off season is usually a better time and it's motivating and you feel like, all right, I'm, you know, I'm doing really well here. Um, and I don't feel like I'm pushing uh, a large boulder up a hill. And then as we get into uh, pre-competitive season, then it would really be about maintenance as we are starting to build and strengthen and increase the density of muscle and seeing what's happening there. So are we actually increasing our muscle mass? If I'm a weight class athlete where I need to be under a certain weight, then maybe we also need to be careful about increasing muscle mass. It seems to me, as you mentioned, it's very individual, but a bit of a balancing act too, uh, between the, the training side of it and timing and whatnot. So in in, in an elite sports setting, um, do you find that there's like you communicate not only with the athlete, but also their trainers a lot? Is there a lot of that that sort of team communication? Very much so. And I, one of the things I love about the elite level is that we work off yearly training plans. So the yearly training plan will be set out usually by the coach and we'll say, you know, here is the off season. This is what the off season is going to look like. These are the alternate activities that uh, the athlete is going to do to maintain, you know, um, strength and agility. Um, and then as we get into, there'll be a certain period of base training and then there'll be um, specific training and then there'll be race training. So within that, we can kind of pick the right times to uh, spend the time on the cutting, knowing that. The cutting isn't just general cutting either. We typically take what I call like an A race and a B race or an A competition and a B competition. And those are the ones that really matter. And they may also have the tightest controls around uh, weight, for example. Uh, and there's actually great research about this. Trent Stellingworth put out a fantastic paper that followed a runner, uh, which happened to be his wife. And he looked at her weight over a nine-year period and how she cycled up and down based on this yearly training plan and also on uh, the competitions that she was involved in. So there was a few Olympic years, and so you could watch her weight go up and down as she prepared for the different competitions. What what type of runner was she? Like distance? Yeah, she's a middle distance runner. Yeah. So what was interesting about that was that she didn't try and stay lean for the entire period, and she didn't try and stay lean for the entire season. She would pick certain times of the season that were most important. And she is in a power to weight ratio sport. She's a runner. So this is maybe a little bit different than uh, weight class sports. 
weight class sports, for example, like rowing, tend to have different weights depending on the season. So it might start out a little bit heavier, and then they expect you to lose a few kilograms heading towards the A race, and then for the A race, you've got to show up at a certain uh, weight. With that in mind, we can kind of tailor the plan to that idea, be meaning that we don't want you to be lean for the entire time because your body's not meant to be that lean for the entire time. It's not healthy to do so. And you can imagine that with this plan comes a lot more uh, meetings, which is really exciting because we're doing all sorts of tracking. And then we're also asking, like, how are you feeling? Are you feeling hungry? Are you having cravings in the week? Um, is the weight coming off consistently? And then working with the rest of the team to find out how are they performing in terms of their times or their expectations? How is recovery feeling? Are you feeling like you're not recovering? Sometimes a lack of recovery is not related to uh, performance intensity. It's related to lack of fuel. Mood is also a big component of that. So asking about all these different things helps us to understand whether the plan is working or whether it's too intense or not intense enough. So you'd mentioned a lot of ways in which you, you track the progress of, of athletes. What other tools and resources do you have? Maybe whether that's like a phone app or like free apps, stuff like that, that you, that you use or, or that you can maybe comment on that your average athlete could use. One of the things that I like to use is an app called Eat to Win. So that's eat, and then the number two, and then win. And that is a, a fun tool that is free, and you can put in your uh, your height and your weight and the amount of hours that you're working over a uh, week, and it will essentially put together a diet plan for you. And the diet plan is ridiculously simple, but it really does go off the idea of eating every two to four hours a day. So it will suggest simple breakfasts, simple, simple lunches, simple dinners, and a whole lack of snacks. Um, including things that are easy to buy as well as things that are really easy to make. So that's kind of my favorite one because it's really oriented towards athletes who don't have a lot of time to prepare food and may not even be very good at preparing. Right. Mm. And so they would start with that and then you could sort of tailor that, like build and change and switch. Absolutely. And yeah. There. So, I, you know, if you have a weight goal, it'll say, okay, what's your weight goal and by what date? And then it will change it around and you can change your weight goal and watch the, um, uh, the amount of portion you know it's by portion so it might say half a cup of rice oh no now you want to gain two pounds all right fine now you're going to do a cup of rice for example um and so we play around with it on that basis with the initial idea being well, why are we doing if we're going to change our, our goal in terms of body composition why are we doing it and what is the impact going to be if we don't know the answer then i would often just you know maybe let's just start by by eating as healthily as possible and seeing how your body and that would be kind of like baseline eating. The tool Eat to Win, is it still as effective if you don't have a dietitian next to you to help uh, guide it and mold it? Or is it something that works best when you're working with a dietitian? I think it's a good start to work. If you didn't have the opportunity to work with a dietitian, it would still be relatively helpful in terms of helping you understand how much food to eat. Mm -hmm. I think because most uh, most people don't really know how much they're supposed to eat. And as I, we were talking about before, some people are very aware of their body's cues and others aren't. I mean, your body doesn't have a lot of cues. When it says it's, when your stomach is growling, is that because it's hungry or because it's sick? Um, when you are coughing, is that because, you know, there's too much chlorine in the pool or because the air quality is terrible or because you're getting a cold? Do you see a big difference with that being around athletes that are older than university age, but then also working with athletes that are in university, like even thinking of myself as an athlete when in my undergraduate degree versus even a couple of years after the amount that I was able to recognize in my body, like 
I'm pretty sure I had zero understanding of what was going on in my body and any of the signals I was being given in my you know, second year of undergrad. So is that something you see a lot with a change in age or as people get older? Typically, yes. People become more aware of their bodies as they get older. And I think I would describe the athlete between the ages of 17 and 25 as kind of like the superhero body in terms of you can go, if you think about sleep, you can go with the least sleep for the longest time during that age. You can go with the least food for the longest time. And that's why the military likes that age group so much, right? Or the worst quality food. Yes, all of those things, exactly. But it doesn't mean that it's good for you. It just means that you can in a less suffering way than someone my age. And then to imagine, I mean, which you uh, uh, have seen with the athletes you've worked with, if you can do all of that on a terrible sleep pattern, a terrible diet, terrible choices or less than optimal choices, what can you do when you actually make the right choices in all those areas? If we're looking at this across age, what's your opinion on what what children are exposed to the earliest, which is the Canadian Food Guide? And which is guides a lot of parents that might not have other resources or guides children because it's actually a lot of time in the classroom on the wall. And how does that align with your uh, views on how, let's say, children should eat, but then also how that feeds into as you get older? I think the Canada's Food Guide is an extremely valuable tool. It is extremely well-researched. Not only is it well-researched, so all the science that I'm talking about, all the science on food is all incorporated into it but there's an extra layer of what Canadians eat. So not just generally all Canadians, but all Canadians from all parts of Canada, that's all incorporated. So they take all of the science, all of the ways that Canadians eat, because there is food data on how Canadians eat, and then they actually put together food models in terms of, is there enough nutrients in this way of eating? Is there enough nutrients in this part of Canada? Is there enough nutrients based on a certain budget? So all of that is incorporated into that picture of that plate. So it's really perfect for Canadians from the ages of two all the way through now 102. Um, That said, then when we put on our lens of performance, you know, even if you're a recreational athlete, uh, a master's athlete, so someone who is no longer in a competitive realm or is competing at a a master's level, which is officially the over age 18, then you need to know that as you get uh, towards the age of 40, you need more protein because your, your body has a harder time keeping on muscle mass. Um, and so the amount of muscle per kilo or the amount of protein per kilo that you need is just higher than it was when you were young. Um, and if you look at the eating patterns of adults, that tends to go the opposite way. And there's some very interesting research right now on seniors and how they tend to eat very little in the morning, maybe like just a little bit for lunch and a big meal for dinner. And so all the protein is being absorbed at the end of the day, but your body doesn't want to absorb it all only at the end of the day. It kind of wants to absorb a little bit all day. So if we could just take all that protein from the meal um, at dinner time and put, you know, take some of that out and put some at breakfast and some at lunch, they tend to live way longer, be less injured, and if they fall and end up in the hospital, they're actually able to get out of the hospital and continue to live. I, I, I feel like I use coffee as as a way to like curb your appetite. Curb my appetite because <laughs> I'll, I'll have a coffee every morning, <clears throat> and then but then I just won't feel hungry until lunch, right? Yeah, that makes sense to me. Because it is overriding your body's cues yeah. with a stimulant, so you're not you can't really hear the other cues, which might be hunger. For athletes consuming caffeine, uh, assuming you're drinking caffeinated coffee, yeah. uh, is there beyond that of interrupting your hunger cues other other negatives to it that they should consider? 
I think one of the trends that I have seen is that people are using caffeine as a stimulate to help them get through their workout. So I don't have an issue with people drinking caffeine, but some some of the pre-workout products have a stimulant in them. And some of those stimulants are caffeine, and some of them are other things that are banned substances. That's the first thing we need to be aware of, is like staying away from the banned substances, knowing what everything is on the package. Because those pre-workout supplements are like the Wild West, right? There's no regulations around them. If I made yogurt, there's something called a standard of identity, and you can only put a certain number of things in yogurt, or else you can no longer call it yogurt. Um, and that's the true of almost everything in the Canadian food supply. It all has a specific standard of identity. When we get into these um, uh, things like pre, uh, pre-workout pre supplements, there's no standard of identity and they are not considered foods. So as a result, you can put whatever you want in them. Um, or they can be cross-contaminated from other things that are being made in the same factory, which happens all the time. So that aside, if you're just going to drink a coffee or an espresso, make sure that it's something that you're not using to um, elevate your lift in particular, um, your session in the weight room. because what happens when you um, drink caffeine? It's a vasodilator, so all of a sudden your heart is pumping and it becomes an aerobic workout. And we don't want it to be an aerobic workout. That's not the point of it. The point of it is to increase muscle mass and density. So you're changing the goal of one workout into um, another area. Um, so I think that's that's kind of more the concern I have with caffeine. Is like, sure, if, if caffeine is something that you can consume all day long and it doesn't really bother you, doesn't affect your sleep, um, that means that you have a certain type of genetic profile and that's cool. If, on the other hand, if you're consuming caffeine and you're finding that you're not able to do a lot of fine motor skills or that you're jittery or that it increases your anxiety, then probably we need to be more careful as to where we apply the caffeine. Mm-hmm. For example, if you're a rugby player who gets really anxious before games, I would not add coffee into that situation because you're going to have a hard time catching the ball and it's going to increase your anxiety level, yeah. um, which will probably also decrease your hunger factor, which means you're not going to feel well. But that's that's actually something you and I have talked about before is uh, having caffeine pre-competition because that, that was something that I would do is I, I would have a coffee or some sort of caffeine supplement before. Um, as a way of just getting into that sort of intense, energetic kind of headspace. I think it was more, let's cross all the negatives off the list. Like if you are not a person who's getting anxious before games, um, that's not you, fine. Well, then we don't have to worry about that. If it's not something that makes you super jittery, then fine, we don't have to worry about that. Then absolutely caffeine is A, legal, and B, a stimulant that can perhaps enhance performance, depends on the person. But secondarily, it kind of reduces the feeling of pain and increases euphoria. So if that helps you get through, you know, a lot of sport is mental. So if it helps you get through uh, with a slight modicum of less suffering, then do it. And and so would you suggest a pre-workout provided that it's, you know, you've checked the ingredients or, or coffee or like a caffeine pill? Ah, good question. So I, I kind of don't know my official response on this because on the one hand, if you drink a coffee, coffee has a wildly variable amount of caffeine. So we don't know how much caffeine you're getting when you drink a coffee. So we could replace that with caffeine pill, but then you're eating a pill and then you're relying on a non-natural ingredient Um, That is, someone's had to isolate the caffeine out of whatever source it was, and maybe it gets cross-contaminated. So I think, again, we need to think a little bit about what the impact is. So for a runner, for example, for marathon runners, they will often use a gel with a caffeine source in it, and those are NSF certified. So we know that they have not been cross-contaminated, so that's 
fine. But you don't typically want to take something like that if you're not a, in an endurance sport. So back to, you know, should I have a coffee before a game? Yeah, if it's something where we can cross all those other issues off the list and it's not something that's going to keep you up all night and you feel like it is a performance enhancer for you, then then absolutely do it. And I wouldn't try it the first time during a game. I would try it during a practice. Right. Um, how do you feel during that practice? How did you feel after the practice? Were you able to eat normally? Like, is everything else kind of normal? Great. Um, that means you're either a fast metabolizer or a neutral metabolizer. But then there's this whole other group of genetic makeup, which is about 10% of the population, and they are slow metabolizers, and they cannot get the caffeine out of their system. Are there any nutrition trends that you're paying attention to, like things that have like recently mm-hmm. come up? There's always a few that I keep my eye on, and the one that is my favorite is the microbiome. So anything essentially that's going on in your lower gut. There's a lot of really interesting research going on in that area, some of which is Um, let's say health promoting or could be interesting for performance. And some of it is really uh, more related to, you know, negative things that are going on in the gut. So I will see a number of athletes who have gut issues, um, whether it's IBS or it's gluten or it's um, some sort of an allergy that they haven't figured out yet, or sometimes it's called leaky gut syndrome. So these are all reasons why an athlete is not performing at their best. Their gut is not quiet. And really, I think, the goal for me is for your gut to be as quiet as possible during competition. So if it's acting up, uh, then it's a source of stress and we want to keep that thing quiet. So the microbiome is um, an area that I really keep an eye on for that reason, because we've got all sorts of different people with all sorts of different experiences around competition. For example, Ironman participants and marathon runners have all sorts of gut issues and they don't really know why, but they do find that taking gluten out, even if you don't have a gluten sensitivity, can help. But it's also, gluten is a great source of protein, so I don't necessarily want to take it out. So the microbiome is an an interesting area because it also can have an impact on your immune system. And as we know, um, the immune system is impacted naturally by exercise. It's tamped down a little bit, uh, especially the more you exercise. So we want to find ways to increase immunity because athletes are traveling around and, you know, we have winter seasons where everybody's getting sick and then that reduces training days. Um, So that's an area that... I'm not going to say a lot about it in terms of, oh, you should do this, you should do this, because it's really quite individualistic. But yeah. it's, I would say if you're interested in following research trends, anything to do with the microbiome is, um, is really interesting. For the person that's listening, that's an athlete and maybe is on their way to see a dietitian in a couple of weeks or is thinking about it but wants to make some performance enhancements or um, changes, that behavioral changes that can improve their performance, are there a quick set of, you know, one to three changes somebody can make right now before they get to see a dietitian that you would recommend? I would say with the huge caveat at the beginning that if you are someone that is really uncomfortable with your body um, and has sensitivities around eating, that is eating in front of other people or uh, feeling like they're not eating the right way or feeling like they're not happy with their body, maybe what I'm going to say is will not be helpful, in which case don't do it. But for everyone else, writing down what you're eating for a few days is really interesting. Just as a, like, as I say, not judging, you know, there's been all this research around, uh, it is suggested that police lineups don't work because no one can really remember what someone looks like. And no one can really remember what they ate yesterday or even today. So writing it down is really kind of, I'm not going to say fun, but it's instructional because you don't really know what you're eating until you look back at what you've eaten. 
So I find, you know, whether it's writing it on a piece of paper or keeping a note in your phone or actually using a MyFitnessPal or whatever, for me, it doesn't matter where you put it, but writing that down will give you a sense of what time you're eating, where that happened versus your workouts, and, and also the types of things that you like to eat and how often you are, you know, if I say to someone, how much pop do you drink? They're estimating, but if they're writing it down, they're like, oh, look, I had six today. Wow, that's way more than I thought. And we can do a quick calculation and be like, wow, that was like a thousand calories in pop. Um, So again, for me, it's not judging. It's just, well, we know what the, you know, scientifically the best times and things to eat are. So let's compare that or let's calculate how much protein you're taking in versus what the ultimate amount of protein would be in. Is there a gap? No, it's pretty close. Or yes, there is a gap and that would be our first priority. For those that are trying to embrace more of a healthy lifestyle or a diet that can improve their performance, but are completely lost as to what foods to choose, are there, is there like a starter, like a starter pack in your mind of a few foods to, to choose or even like a, a t- like a really quick, not recipe, but combination of foods like for the grab and go, you know, student athlete that's affordable, but also falls in line with the type of fuel that you would recommend? Um, so, uh, most of what I, when I get to the teaching part of my, um, my meeting, uh, I refer to something called the athlete's plate and the athlete's plate was developed by the U S Olympic committee and it's the way their cafeterias are based. Um, so they have this beautiful looking plate, which I can show you. Um, it's, there's an easy day, a moderate day and a hard day. So hard day is like two workouts or more easy days, uh, no workouts or just like, you know, doing a flush, um, or a walk or whatever. Um, and a moderate day would be like one workout a day. Um, and the plate is just kind of like, here's all the things that you might add on your plate and here's where they fit. You know, do you have a source of protein? Here's, you know, a list of 10 different things that would be considered a protein because not everybody knows where the nutrients come from. Um, so when I talk about the quarter plate of protein, that's directly from the athlete's plate. So what would fit on the athlete's plate? A sandwich would fit on the athlete's plate. So the bread would fit in the grains area. Um, the protein was probably in the middle and it would look like, you know, maybe it's deli meat or maybe it's one of those store-bought roast chickens that you take all the chicken off. Maybe it's tuna, maybe it's peanut butter. So that would get like most of the athletes played. And then I would be like, well, where's your fruit or veg? Maybe you would add an apple or a pear or a tomato or something. And that would be your plate. And the plate is really the size of your stomach. So whatever you're used to eating would be the size of the plate for you. So if you're some you know, massive football player, then maybe you have two plates or a super large plate. So I use that a lot. And the U.S. Olympic Committee actually has cafeterias where you say, like, I will have the moderate plate, the hard plate. So it's really effective because it's based on a pitcher. And then I also encourage snacks. And I would encourage most athletes to snack at least twice a day. So assuming you're having breakfast, then you'd have a mid-morning snack. You'd have lunch. You'd have a mid-afternoon snack. And I don't care if the snack is a peanut butter and jam sandwich. That fits the bill for me because it's got some carb and it's got some protein. It could be cheese and crackers. Like I'll often say, think about what your parents fed you when you got home from school. That's a snack. You know, like, yes, snacks are good. We need snacks as athletes because we need a constant source of protein. Not constant, but like pretty regular source. Do you imagine if every every restaurant cafeteria was based on the athlete plate and you walked in and you went to either easy, moderate or hard? That portion oh. control would be solved. Yeah, it would be. It would. It, oh my gosh! Because you'd have to take that moment and really assess your day and be like, "I only walked to and from work today." You know, yeah. I heard a stat yesterday, which was that one in ten people haven't cooked anything in more than a year. 
Yeah. Whoa. So for me, that's indicative of the fact that they're getting, their, it's not that they're not eating, they're getting their food from somewhere else. And so what happens when you eat somewhere else is that they mess with your portions, right? First of all, you don't get to choose your portion. They give you what everybody gets and you might be, it might be not enough for you or too little for you, but that doesn't yeah. matter. That's what's on your plate and you typically will eat what people give you. Um, but also if we compare it to the athlete's plate, carbohydrates are really cheap. Protein's expensive and fruit and veggies ex uh, expensive. So they're going to give you way more carbs than you need. Yeah. Not enough protein, not enough fruits and veg. So I'll often say, all right, so I see that you're going to Subway a lot and you're ordering the footlong whatever. You need extra deli whatever in there. You need some extra protein in there. Can you uh, have like half the sandwich but double the protein? Where are your go-to places and, and, and why? So my go-to places make a lot of salads because I don't like making my own salad. So I don't make my own salad. So that's, you know, sometimes people are kind of like, well, what are you eating? I don't really like to show people what I'm eating because I feel like people are going to judge me. Like when I say, oh, I'm going out with my dietitian friends for dinner, they're like, ugh. God, what's that? That's like? gonna be terrible. <laughs> no, there's different. Like, turns out dietitians really like food. Yeah. Um. So, for example, fresh on the corner. Um. I love to go to fresh because they put all sorts of different lettuces in there, and they make all sorts of strange combinations that I wouldn't come up with on my own. And yes, they're vegan, but for me, that's beside the point. For me, it's an opportunity to get like a really fresh salad with I don't know five different kinds of leaf and other things in there that I wouldn't buy myself. I might buy one or two kinds of different leaves, but um, I wouldn't necessarily have all five in my kitchen and I wouldn't have 16 different kinds of nuts and all the sprinkles. So I like going there and seeing what they can come up with. And then I combine that with a little soup, which is usually um, like a lentil-based soup. So there's my protein. And because I am over 50 in, in off-season, I'm not eating a lot of carbs right now. Yeah. So that would be like my lunch. Yeah. So that's my very favorite thing to do. And so often when I'm here on Wednesdays, people are like, oh, what's in your bag? And I'm like, it's, it's still salad. I'm just walking around with bagged salads. I'm, uh, they might be wondering, why haven't you prepared your own meals? And the answer is because it's a treat. Yeah. <laughs> my, my treat right now is my salad. You're, you're very um, skilled in this field and experienced in this field. And uh, especially given all your work before being at U of T and then now with all, of, all the varsity athletes, for somebody who's not at U of T and is listening, and what's the best way, maybe they're in Toronto, maybe they're in a different country, what's the best way to find... A dietitian? Uh, that's a great question. And I would say if you're trying to access a dietitian, uh, the best place to start is the website Dietitians of Canada because they do have a find a dietitian section. So each mm -hmm. dietitian in Canada would be on that and then they would describe what their specialties are. Because it seems like um, in speaking with you over this time, like you feel like a very non judgmental, safe space. And just like you were saying too, that you're like, your priorities are our priorities. Like, even if I have a priority, if you don't care about it, then we're not going to focus on that one. We're mm -hmm. looking at your priorities. And and I think that's a unique thing for a clinician of, of, of like, many different fields. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if there is if there is a question to ask to, to find out if that's, you know, the person who's sitting across from you or, yeah. All dietitians would really want to help you in terms of how to get the nutrients and the foods that you need in a way that works for you. Thank you for tuning in to the Athletic Perspective Podcast. Check us out online via our website, athleticperspective.com. Again, that's athleticperspective, all one word, dot com. Or on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Give us a like, give us a follow, subscribe, whatever you prefer. 
We have some great guests, some great content lined up, so stay tuned for more.